I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 28th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest will be Natasha Frolova, crisis psychologist in the Department of Psychology and Social Work at Dnipro National University of Ukraine, who is a Fulbright Scholar in Residence at UC Irvine. She's with working with trauma social scientist Roxanne Silver. We'll just start right away. My guest is Professor Natasha Frolova. She is a crisis psychologist from Dnipro National University in Ukraine, who, as a Fulbright Scholar, is in residence at UC Irvine with noted UCI trauma social scientist Roxanne Silver. Professor Frolova is learning about collective trauma so she can help Ukrainians cope with the stress of war in her country. Natasha Frolova completed both her first degree in practical psychology and her PhD in psychology at Dnipro National University and cross-cultural studies at the Soros Summer School in Budapest, Hungary. She joins me in studio. We're recording this on November 27th. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor Natasha Frolova. Thank you for inviting. Thank you so much. Given that we've communicated in several different settings, in very personal terms, I would like to respectfully request that I may refer to you by your first name. You're welcome. Okay, thank you. Well, we're just days after the 90th year commemoration of the Holodomor, where millions of Ukrainians died in a man-made famine engineered by Joseph Stalin. Some of our listeners, perhaps saw President Zelensky's public address last weekend. I want to know right now, Natasha, how you're doing. Uh, you know that Holodomor, uh, it's also the part of our history. And uh, my grandma, uh, who was born in 1920, was the victim of Holodomor because two of her sisters died of hunger. And this was the national tragedy when people have nothing to eat. And uh, uh, the problem was that um, all the wheat or crops that were gathered were expropriated. And this period was very serious challenge for Ukrainian people. And um, when I started to learn collective trauma, I found the information about it in historical aspect. I mean, Ukrainian uh, scientists studied Holodomor as a way that influenced Ukrainian consciousness because this challenge was very painful. So, and uh, 90 years passed, but the um, people's memory is still alive about it, I mean. And that's why every fourth Saturday of November, people put a candle on the window still in the window just to memorize the victims of Holodomor and uh, to think about it and not to let the tragedy to come again. And it was a day where there may have been at least 75 drones that were coming in toward yes. Kiev yes. over that commemorative day. And we will get to the the kind of tactical matters that Ukrainians are enduring right now. So. I'd like to ask you, Dnipro is right there on, the city of is on the river of the same name, and the university is close, I guess, close to the river too, and it's in the 
Fortunately, our uh, our city has never been occupied, but the border, I mean the border of occupation territory, is uh, 150 kilometers from our city. Too okay. close. Okay. Too close. So, okay. So, the trauma experienced by everyone, I'd like you to bring up what the civilians and military are enduring that I was saying mentioning those drone attacks on Holdemort anniversary it's they're not strategic attacks they are there to as a campaign in cruelty talk about when you presented that slide at a, a an amazing public forum you were at last month in Irvine you were putting up a slide about where those attacks are all over. And I want you to have listeners join you in understanding what kind of tactic this is, because we're talking about trauma. So if we uh, look at the picture or at the map of Ukraine, it's possible, unfortunately, it's possible to see that bloodiest Russian terrorist attacks in our country take place not only in the uh, border, but in in the whole country. So we have the possibility to see terrorist attacks in the east, in the south, in the west, and there is no safe place in Ukraine nowadays. And while looking at the map, we can see that, um, by the way, when the war started, uh, Russian people say that uh, they came to to free us. Now we understand it more than clearly that they came to kill us, not to free. And uh, uh, our attitude to the situation is that this is the real terrorism. This is not the war in classical understanding of this meaning. This is terrorist uh, character and uh, it, it is extremely uh, cruel uh, not only for militars, uh, militars, but also for civilians. Because the number of people, I mean civilian people, uh, who are killed and injured, the quantity of people who were, um, uh, see, I mean civilian people who were died in, and injured, is more than 25,000. So... The Austrian psychiatrist that you also quoted at this particular forum that I met you at last month, he's a Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, and he, he actually he survived, as you know, but maybe listeners are not aware, he survived being in four different concentration camps in three years, and he actually lived to be an 88-year-old in the later last century. And you shared a quote, Natasha, of his, and I'm going to start the quote, an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. I'd like you to put that into what the Ukrainians are going through. Um, so I use this phrase because um, I do appreciate Viktor Frankl's system, I mean existential psychology. He is considered to be the father of existential psychology. And uh, this sentence is uh, just about the thoughts, particularly all the Ukrainian people have. Being a crisis psychologist, I listen uh, to, to my clients' fears, and they very often ask 
Is it normal to be so aggressive? Is it normal to hate people so much? Is it normal to, to, to want to see some people dead? So, and my answer is one and the same. Uh, this is the normal reaction to abnormal situation. So, uh, we do not have any experience to live in war. Nobody has uh, the experience of living in war and we don't know how to behave when your country is in war. And that's why, as for me, all the reactions are considered to be normal because it's just the way for people to survive. And I proceed here knowing fully that, speaking from my disposition of extreme comfort, that I am very concerned that I keep re-traumatizing my Ukrainian connections with my wide-eyed questions that I call them. But we are, we are here to probe this for a fullest understanding, as that is the work you're doing now with Roxanne Silver. And you talk about how this coping, or moving through this abnormal reaction in this abnormal situation that another quote of his that you bring up is, those with a why to bear can bear almost anyhow. So let's talk about how Ukrainians are coping, how they're applying their talent to do any jobs for the effort to remove the Russians and to rebuild. And we can start with the world giving sorts of ranking Ukraine is super high, number two, in different categories of helping the stranger, of donating resources. I'm not going to say donating money, resources, and volunteering. And I also want to bring up examples that are amidst us and that I'm uh, privy to that I find are very important possibilities for me to help in that coping. So talk about the ways, starting with the world giving rankings as a way of gauging how this coping is working in Ukraine? So, you know, very interesting uh, question, because um, when something unusual or difficult uh, happens in people's uh, life, they um, usually start to look for some ways of solving the situation and we speak about the resilience system that people are looking uh, for in order to survive or to overcome this unpleasant event. So, and when we speak about Ukrainians, uh, I would like to say that while the specialists and the government uh, was trying to, to build the system of uh, ways to help people, I mean, resilience system, people chose some ways of helping themselves unconsciously and volunteering is for me is one of the best coping people chose in order to help other people and to help themselves at the same time so and if we look uh, at the statistics 78 percent uh, of ukrainians help strangers 78 percent 70 percent uh, donate money and 38% are official volunteers 
it means that they have the status of volunteer but particularly every person in ukraine is a volunteer because people have the possibility to choose the way they can be helpful some people mm, make mm, mosquito nets so in order to cover weapon then some people help uh, military uh, officers i think uh, they are called military volunteers so they bring food uh, to them uh, weapon and whatnot some people have um, use their their talents i mean for example they sell their pictures or they sell uh, the things they can do in order to to get money and also to, to help uh, the military officers of ukraine and uh, so every person is a possibility to choose and as for me i work as a crisis psychologist as a volunteer and i started to work it in march and it helped me a lot to understand the situation because it was very important for me to be needed so when mm. people are not um are needed so it gives them the possibility to move and at the same time i with my friends uh, help their animals who are at the occupied territories of our country so uh, when their hosts left the territory uh, a lot of dogs and cats were left unfortunately so we bought food for them and our volunteers have the possibility to go and to feed them so it's also the part of volunteering that helped me i know that this is the theory of small things but they are helpful and every person has the possibility to do it to choose what to do and if uh, it's difficult to do something so they uh, donate money for some things that are necessary to help medical uh, service to help volunteers to help military officers so this is the part of coping ways that people use and they are helpful and another part that was also uh, as for me chosen unconsciously this is uh, the level of our national identity i mean uh, that uh, the colors of our flag our flag our clothes our symbols uh, became extremely popular and necessary for people who stayed in ukraine or who left the country so this is just the way to support people in such difficult situation and when i see our flag i felt uh, a little bit calmer because mm. i know that this is uh, also my resource and as you see i am with uh, this flag here she has in studio with us yes yes today i am in a t-shirt of uh, uc irvine because i'm a part of this uh, society for three months and i'm happy to be here but so my flag is with me and the attitude uh, of uh, people to um, my country to me as a specialist from ukraine is very respectful and uh, by the way uh, last week we had a meeting with the provost of uc who invited uh, fulbright scholars and we had the possibility also to speak about our plans and the topic um, the scholars chose to study here in irvine for those of you who've just joined us my guest for the full program is natasha forlova a crisis psychologist 
and associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Social Work at Dnipro National University in Ukraine, who as a Fulbright scholar, she just mentioned, is in residence at UC Irvine working with trauma social scientist Roxanne Silver. So I know it's the crisis psychology is your field. When you talk about this coping from in, in giving in these different ways, I'm just wondering if there is even a chemical kind of equation going on. The adrenaline is getting replaced with oxytocin for somebody who's decided, to, uh, figured out a way to contribute. Is that, do you think that's a plausible kind of chemical reaction? Just, or is that is that out of your field? No, I think I think uh, you're right, and uh, just um, as as the illustration of your words, I can say that nowadays, when I hear, for example, when I answer, you know, these words, "Glory to Ukraine," and yes. the words we repeat, uh, "Glory to the heroes." We can then, let's say that I'll say "Slava Ukraini." Heroem Slava. That's the pattern response, and I I actually bring that up when I'm out in the field and I don't know if, if I'm approaching and, a Ukrainian or Russian and it's a way I extend my lifeline to Ukrainian and it's a way I can express to Russians who give me all kinds of reactions to that where I can let them know that I'm not here to make propagandizing consuming Russians comfortable. And when I say these words Heroem Slava, I always I always feel some some uh, some um, mm-hmm. like trembling on my ha- on my uh, hands because I know these heroes. They are not uh, something something it's not abstract at not all. Not abstract. Yes. And and the same thing is about our hymn when we have the, uh, the the words that we are ready to give our soul and our body for our freedom. So we know a lot of people who gave their souls and bodies just to protect us. So that's why every time it is like a like a chemical reaction and uh, this is like a reaction we have to remember this traumatic situation and our body gives this reaction in order to help us. So just just while reacting, we understand uh, the situation or we have the possibility to leave it once again. Okay. The, there was an inaudible expression that with radio, you can have to just trust that there was more of that expression. So I, I kind of alluded to that. And how would you like to bring to our listeners this the trauma of the hybrid families there are a lot of ukrainian russian extended families there are couples that are russian ukraine in in ukraine right now and they're they're also here so there is a very specific kind of trauma going on with how how are you going to deal with that relative and because those relatives are all having their own takes on who's responsible for what's going on and how much propaganda they and the kind they're concerned. We'll talk about the propaganda in full later, but let's talk about this hybrid arrangement, how complicated that is and how traumatizing that is. Uh, so, you know, uh, first of all, I would like to say is that when we speak about uh, collective trauma, uh, we speak about trauma of every uh, representative of the society 
I mean that every person, every Ukrainian is for me, uh, who is in Ukraine and um, probably the people who left Ukraine, all of them are traumatized with these war events. Then um, there is a what combination cascading events. Yes. So these are events that make trauma stronger. And your question is about our connection uh, with uh, Russian people. And uh, this is, as for me, this is a part of cascading events we have. Because, uh, yes, you are absolutely right that our connection with Russia was very, very deep for many years. And uh, probably it was possible to say that we are like brothers. And the culture was... The, oh, I just, oh, okay. just want to, to say that uh, our language is uh, from one and the same Slavonic group as Russian one. Uh, all the Ukrainian people understand Russian. And a lot of Russian people understand Ukrainian. The first moment. The second moment. We have similar religion. And um, till the beginning of the war, Moscow Patriarchate was uh, also the main patriarchate in Ukraine. So the same language, the same religion, a lot of relatives, a lot of uh, families uh, whose parents live in uh, different countries. So we were too close. And it was so difficult for us to believe that uh, such awful things could happen in the 21st century. So, and I, I do remember mm. these two first weeks. So it was unbelievable for us. So it every, every I remember every morning when I got up and I said it, it was a mistake. So it, it, it um, uh, probably it uh, would stop in a day, in two, in a week, in a month. So now we have 22 months of the war. And unfortunately, we even do not know uh, anything about the end of this awful story. So that's why the level of uh, connection with uh, Russia now is uh, not even neutral. It's, it's extremely negative. So, and these are the people my clients usually ask, is it possible to hate people so much? Especially when these people are considered to be our brothers. So, Natasha, I want to bring in with addressing that trauma that you talked about the language and the religion. And I, like many Americans, am learning, oh, that particular cultural phenomenon, that, that sort of, that choreographer in ballet, or that... That entrepreneur, th this is a Ukrainian person, and so that those are being appropriated as Russian contributions. That that's what I'm trying to say is making that hybrid relationship and arrangement that there's a kind of appropriating of things that are really actually purely Ukrainian. Yes, that is yes, taking yes. effect. It's a very important question because uh, when I went to school, and uh, so the subject all the Ukrainian uh, children study was Russian literature. So we know Russian literature well, we know Russian art, and uh, we know a lot of things Russian people do and a lot of things 
we uh, did together. I mean, aerospace and a lot of other things. And nowadays, all the monuments of Russian writers are displaced in our country because we want uh, to have only Ukrainian one. I mean, uh, we have enough Ukrainian writers and outstanding persons to commemorate and to remember. And engineers, the nuclear yes weapons, nuclear power plants. I mean, the the sort of the whole the whole tech part of the Ukrainian and DNA. This is, there. And this is the time to understand our history and uh, um, our culture in uh, another way. And I do like the, the way our children grow up now. They mm. speak Ukrainian uh, and it, it looks very funny. Uh, and uh, by, by the way, when I went to university on the 1st of September 2022, I was a tutor of uh, first year students and all of them decided to speak Ukrainian only. They just they said, decided. Yes, yes. And it was extremely important for them to speak Ukrainian only. For some of them, it was very, very difficult because eastern part of uh, Ukraine was Russian speaking for many years. Right, right. So they decided to speak Ukrainian. It was with mistakes. It was not very, very quickly. But it became important for people to use their national language only and not, not to use Russian language even for some um, unofficial communication. And I, w I want to say that's, that is a real life example experience in our very community reported to me by a Ukrainian friend. My Russian neighbor insisted that they speak Russian together. And my Ukrainian friend said, I would like to speak English. I mean, not even requesting Ukrainian. So the trauma, it's on a continuum. That's a kind of a mild, medium trauma to say, no, I want to speak Russian with you, Ukrainian friend of mine. So it's it's happening around us so that people understand if, if it's offensive here in our neighborhood, which is not dodging Shahid drones, it's really an important, a potent kind of weapon, that kind of imposition. Yes, yes, and when we speak about uh, the trauma in Ukraine, it's 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 very important to say that uh, now we can say that it is not only collective, but also national one, and it has unfortunately chronic character. So that's why people are to choose uh, the ways. Uh, I mean, the ways of um, supporting themselves. And language is also one of the ways to feel uh, the real, uh, to feel Ukrainian, to, to, be, to be the real Ukrainian. So, and I know a lot of people who are old enough and they started to speak, uh, not only students, not only children, but also um, uh, people, middle-aged people who started to speak Ukrainian because it's important for them, because it gives them the feeling that they are the real Ukrainian. And when President Zelensky, I don't know how much Russian he's been speaking recently, but when 
when he does in these recent times choose to speak Russian, it's because he has an audience in mind, and that's his tool. That's what he's very carefully exercising for for a reason. But I don't know that when I don't know when's the last time a public address that's been been pub, uh, been known if, if he hasn't spoken Russian in quite a long time. And by the way, it's a very uh, interesting question yes. because he is from that part of Ukraine. I mean, as the eastern as part, I'm, as I I am also from here. He was completely Russian speaking person for a very long period of time, and then he started to speak Ukrainian. Sometimes it was not very nice, funny, and sometimes very clumsy, but. It oh, was really? important. Yes, yes. When he became the president, so he started because it's it's a, the must if you are the president of the country, you are to speak in Ukrainian still, language. That is a yes, lot. Yes. Uh, language acquisition so, at later For ages, some time, yes. it was difficult for him. And we know it for sure that he had some teachers. Yes. And he improved his skills. You can hear it. Yeah. And wow. now you can you can see that he's a very, very uh, good Ukrainian speaker. Wow. Well, let's let's go to because I gave an example in language about what's happening here. If you could give our listeners, Natasha, some ideas of how we can assist Ukrainians. There's I'm talking about in donating resources, and I'm talking about extending lifelines. Because we have a means to connect one-on-one -on -one with Ukrainians, and I've been doing it. And it's a, it's a lifeline I want you to unpack for us what would be an appropriate way to engage in extending the lifelines. Because there's sort of hollow gestures, and I want you to help us be as intentional as we can be from this moment forward. Because there's a lot of heavy lifting going on in Ukraine, obviously. So what, Natasha, do you recommend to listeners in meaningful assistance in the, from the comfort of our Over Here USA? So uh, and be and elsewhere. If so somebody happens to be listening from another continent, about 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 donating, I think that um, the simplest and the most important way when it is donating uh, has the the real representative. So not to donate money for Ukraine, but to donate uh, a um, person you know, and to understand for what purpose this money will be used. So it it gives you the understanding of the situation and not just to give money but to give money for something special and i know for what this is the the, the uh, as to as uh, we speak about donating money but when we speak about the other way so it just it, it's very important for me to say that yes. i'm here not only like a scientist but also like a cultural ambassador so and my task is to speak about ukraine and to tell people as much as they can in order to give them the possibility to think about the situation. Because some aspects or some moments are not so obvious for American people because we live uh, not too close. This is the first moment. And the level of presentation, I mean, the presentation of information is not uh, so pure and by the way uh, you have your own we we'll talk about propaganda we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. as a separate topic but right and and so knowing clearly the entity that you're contributing resources to yes knowing yes. that and it's it's very blurry 
it's not an excuse to say, well, I'm confused and I don't know who's the legitimate. You can find out, but do do your diligence to find out who is a legitimate entity to accept your resources. Yes, and uh, th this is a fact that uh, uh, sometimes information can be poisoning. So if you have a lot of information and you have no possibility to analyze it, so it may be uh, not for for good, but but really for bad. And a lot of people do not want just to clarify the situation. When I hear the words like, you're Russian, I'm not Russian, I'm Ukrainian. Ah, Ukrainian, this is the same. This is not the same. If you want, I'm ready to explain. But but that is the fact. And for some people, it is the same. So that's why we are to be ready to give the information, to present the information in order to make this, uh, this uh, I mean, cultural attempt to, to offering a cultural offering yeah 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 to 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 make the situation clear so and a lot of people i know that a lot of ukrainians who are abroad do the same job just to explain to educate it doesn't mean that people are not educated it means that people have their own life and probably sometimes they have no time to to understand the situation understandably yeah yeah mm -hmm. that's why so our task is to speak about it not so, only to say pray for Ukraine, but speak about Ukraine because because it's it's very important. It's very important for us, uh, as uh, certainly we have the fear that twenty five months is a very long period, and people may be tired of the problems in our country. This is the real fear we have. So, but the war is not ended, unfortunately. That's why we continue speaking about it, and we are not going to stop till the end of this story and we hope it will be our win so that's why i mentioned the lifeline is that we're we're in a real position of comfort where whatever we can expand to connect in a very intentional and a meaningful way not the thoughts and prayers like we always hear over here when there's been a mass shooting we know that's also a pretty hollow exercise but to to be curious this is a question i was going to ask later on but you're, you're saying you're giving permission for Americans and people on other continents, but to allow yourselves to be curious and ask. And that is another way of sort of shouldering the trauma to some extent. Yes, yes. So generally speaking, uh, I do understand people who are not interested in the situation because when I remember the war, for example, in Syria, it was not interesting for us. No, generally speaking, it was a fact. Till the war, uh, till the moment when the war came in our houses. But that, and we have to remind listeners, that was 2014. When war came to Ukraine in Donetsk and Luhansk, Oblasts. So that's, um, that's it when was, it started. Yes, it, it started, uh, by the way, I was born in Luhansk region. So this is my motherland. And now this is occupation, uh, the occupied, occupied territory. And I had no possibility to go there for 10 years. So, and uh, uh, when the war started, so, I mean, in 2014, it seemed like it was a war for uh, just one part of the country. And a lot of people uh, were not involved in it. That's why when we speak about uh, this war, I mean, uh, 2022 now, we called it full-scaled war. So when all the people of the country understood at last what happened. So they knew about the war, 
but they didn't understand. But the 24th of February was the day when everybody understood what uh, happened in our country. And since that moment, we say that this is a full-scale war, so uh, two years, and we have eight years of this war already before. So 10 years. So tacking on with full-scale war, let's now talk about the hybrid war in the cybersphere, and they call it the connectic war, where weapons are, uh, actual uh, combative weapons are being used. So I'd like for you to help people understand how deep this reaches of the disinformation and misinformation in undermining how anybody is operating and how this technology with its deep fakes, which has get it's getting more and more convincing that Ukraine has to fight this, the world is fighting this hybrid cyber warfare. So that how that relates to your addressing crisis psychology and trauma you know that um, when the people are traumatized uh, this is really normal that they have lack of critical thinking and when we look at the statistics so 22 months of this war i mean full-scale war uh, gave russia the possibility to replace 13,000 fakes, I mean fake information, about the events in Ukraine. 13,000. And if your critical thinking is not high or or your emotions uh, do not let you think critically, you are ready to percept any information, including faking. So that's why the very important moment is about the sources you get the information from and the quantity of information. Because uh, it's I, I remember the first week of the war, it seemed to me that I, I was with my telephone in the internet 24 hours a day. So it was impossible to believe in this situation. And all the time I was in the news. Uh, and... I do remember that this feeling that you see some awful things you cannot influence, but at the same time, you cannot uh, take the uh, mobile phone off. So it's just like a... Um well, it's a, a great challenge to prioritize, yes. to recognize a truthful source from Anon because of it's not just deep fakes, right, Natasha? It could be a grain of truth in a disinformation campaign. So it's 13,000 deep fakes doesn't capture the whole disinformation capacity out there that you can, back to your phone in the opening days of the, the 2022 invasion, that you can't, you don't know what you need to see and what you need to spend your energy on as it's all loading up here, like a and, dump and, truck. And the very important moment is that they they printed uh, uh, or they placed this information not only in Russian sources, but also abroad, in, in the sources of some countries who are so-called friendly, I mean Hungary, for example, or Bulgaria. So, and 
it was, uh, for example, when people read this information in not Russian sources, right. people were ready to believe in this information. So uh, this is also very, a very important question because mass media influence is extremely strong on people's uh, understanding the situation. And just being. It just in interferes yeah. with the, how you are. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, when we speak about the level of traumatizing, we are to to say that awful videos that that unfortunately take place uh, every day, so they are also used like the way to traumatize people more and more. So that's why I would like and I I recommend people not to watch as much videos and non-stop videos because, as I said, it, it's poor zoning. So you read the information, uh, choose the time when you will read this information, read, close your phone and go to do something else because, because it is extremely exhausting. And this is the way of dependence when people, not people, but also children, teenagers, they are sitting in the phone and when they see some, some awful things like killing the people, so and nowadays it's possible, unfortunately, to see uh, this awful killing in in their uh, life ear, yeah, and and then to to watch it again and again. So it is awful, and it is destroying, completely destroying for personal mental health. So that's why the time of um, connecting with mass media, as for me, should be limited, and uh, not only for adults but also for children. Especially for children, because it has a property of an early developmental yes. kind of yes. Yes. damage. And this way of critical thinking is not high for them, and it is normal. So that's why nowadays, I mean, um, uh, the psychologists who work with children have a lot of work to do. And uh, this work is about uh, children's reaction for this war event. I mean, not only insomnia, but also oh. fears, some fears and very high level of aggression by the way this is also the very important problem in our society nowadays because the level of anxiety is very high and the simplest way to transform anxiety is to transform it into aggression not in something useful but into aggression and the level of aggression is too high and People are aggressive according to their nearest and dearest. So domestic violence. Yes. It, domestic yes. abuse is happening. Yes. We don't and see it because there's a message to sort of help help this effort. It's also the way of people's behavior and the way how people cope with their trauma. It's, it's, it's a very bad coping, but some people use it. And, and this level of aggression is also um, the scene that the children have. So that's why we are to take care of that and we are to limit the sources that uh, stimulate this aggression and give people uh, or children the possibility to do something, for example, useful, to make uh, some souvenirs. A lot of people, uh, a lot of children are fond of making souvenirs or drawing pictures for our military officers, and that is much better for them. That's right. And I've like the those. way of, yeah. of uh, overcoming trauma as then sitting in the phone. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Natasha Folova. For this full program, she is a 
crisis psychologist and associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Social Work at Dnipro National University in Ukraine. She's a Fulbright Scholar in residence at UC Irvine working with the trauma social scientist phenom extraordinaire Roxanne Silver. So because you're here doing this important work, I would like to know and, and just you're you're with a cadre of amazing mental health professionals and researchers doing what you can as a kind of an intervention of this kind of very, very persistent, deep kind of outcome. This, uh, this You're talking about this aggression that's directed toward somebody's sort of inner circles, even, in Ukraine. So, Natasha, what would you like to get out of the time you're here working on the collective trauma, and are you also in contact with other people that are doing similar work abroad and returning to Ukraine? What What do you want to get out of this nine-month Fulbright stint? So, first of all, I would like to say that I came here just because um, the best specialist, I mean collective trauma specialist, uh, Roxana Cohen-Silver, uh, works uh, here in uh, the University of California in Vine. So I think her, as for me, she is the best specialist, and I wanted to work only with her. And it was a real gift for me that I get uh, such a possibility. So when I arrived, I've got all the conditions for mm -hmm. my uh, good work. Thank you, Roxy. And uh, I have the possibility to meet her twice a week and to discuss uh, the things I am planning to do here. So we decided to divide uh, my staying here into three parts. And every three months, I have a plan of things I have to do. So the first three months were about analyzing literature and analyzing American experience, which started from 2001, uh, from the direct in uh, New York. Known as 9-11, yes. Yes. Okay. And so, okay. and to analyze Ukrainian events with using American experience, I mean, collective trauma, uh, ways of understanding collective trauma. So this is the first part. The second part is about the scientific research. I'm planning to do at home. I mean to understand the level of traumatizing, uh, Ukrainian people's traumatizing, in order to understand what kind of help we should propose them to overcome their trauma that can be not only collective but also individual one. And the third part is about the building of a um, resilience system that will help people to overcome trauma more successfully. And uh, we are speaking about the, it's like a general frame that all the people can use and add something special. I mean, if it is a civilian or it is a child or it is a military officer. So I mean that there must be like universal program that can be added with some necessary things. So this program of resilience is for me, this is the end result I'm planning to achieve here. Okay. 
Well, that that is a huge, a whole nine-month program here. So I hope you're now in the second of those three phases. So this is the end of the first. The article about uh, Ukrainian experience is ready. So and we are going to present it at one of the magazines as to be published. So this is the result of this first uh, okay. moment of this first step. And I also would like to repeat that my task and my mission, I think, uh, of being here is not only scientific, but also cultural one. And that's why I'm here today. Thank so you. it's much more important for me, not much more, but it's important for me to speak about my country, not only in scientific way, but also in cultural one and in general one way in order to let people know about Ukraine some more information. So I want to tack on with that, Natasha. We have these opportunities. There are so many Ukrainians that are coming here. They're filmmakers. And when somebody sees a Ukrainian film presented with talkbacks, that people take the time and attend those events. And the man who filmed the 20 days in Mariupol, he was in Santa Monica. And they stay, they're available they want to talk with people. They make a lot of time. There was the principal ballet dancer that spoke with me remotely and who danced with the United Ukrainian Ballet Company. And he's bringing the culture, the high culture of Ukrainian ballet, as well as he brought a war veteran in a special choreographed piece. I don't know if you'd heard about that, but the war veteran was on the stage as a last piece danced without his prosthetics on, and then he put the prosthetics on to dance with the United Ukraine Ballet dancers. There, uh, by the way, it sounds very warming. And as the same thing is the event, we got acquainted with you. So it was the interest of people to come and to listen about the events in my country and in order to, to, to be ready. Be ready. Be looking for it. Be, yeah. Before you just start looking for it. And there, there was, there were two Ukrainian documentary filmmakers that came to downtown Los Angeles, and one of the films that they presented for a moment. I'd like to bring this up is that the filmmakers. I'm going to try to pronounce their names: Roman Himai and Yarema Malashuk, and they were collaborating with the Kiev to LA pop-up situation, and one of the documentaries that they presented was called, and was made this year, yes, 2023, Explosions Near the Museum, and that documentary is telling us about what was removed from a Kherson historic museum, what it was, how old it is, why it was so important for the Russian military and special forces to remove all of those relics to steal them that, that, to steal that's them. A, again cruelty is the point but that that the piece also says and when this item returns to this display so it was an affirming message and informing message about ukrainian culture and the, the relics that just demonstrate that so i guess this is one of the my sorts of assignments for listeners is to watch for these. We have entrepreneurs that are here raising money through, there's a chocolatier working in Alisa Viejo, who is 
She's making the world's finest chocolate. This is another demonstration of Ukrainian ability. And she is making money to send back to Ukraine. So they're all around us and find them, folks. And this is an all-out effort that everybody has a role in. So I guess a delicate last question to ask you is your nine months will end. And tell us where you're going to go back and what does your community look like today and what, and yes. You know, I'm happy today because while staying here, I have the possibility to work at home online. This is the the specificity of my work. So it means for me that uh, these nine months, I'm not out of the country, but I'm in the country too. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the uh, situation when I'm one year abroad. So, and it was very important for me not to lose this connection. So that's why in nine months, I'm planning to come back home and to continue my work as a associated professor in uh, the Department of Psychology and Social Work. I mean, Dnipro State University named after Alice Hanchar. This is our Ukrainian writer. Okay. And uh, then I uh, continue my work as a crisis psychologist and uh, as a clinician because it's also the part of my work uh, because I know it for sure that psychological help will be very important when we win because now people have the possibility or the people learn to live in work conditions and the next task is to learn to live in peace. And this is the way uh, the psychologists are uh, to organize and to help people. So thinking of that that condition right now, I'd like for you to, to close with our listeners in that there's a great deal of compartmentalization of this trauma. And so when we watch videos, they're there to say, you know, we've got this, we're resilient, we're managing, but you as a crisis psychologist know there's trauma underneath. So it's like maybe a final kind of appeal to listeners is understand there's a lot going on on many levels in the Ukrainian psyche and not to read it all at face value. That's a coping, but to understand that trauma is there and buried and it will be have to be addressed will be addressed later. You know, the very important thing I would like to say at the end is that um, if if not the war, but for the war, uh, we wouldn't have um, understood how strong we are and how resourceful we are and um, how courageous we are. And I am sure that Ukrainian people will be able to overcome trauma. So certainly it uh, will uh, take a lot of forces and resources. But I know that we will be able to do it because we are Ukrainian. And this is our superpower. Because we are proud to be Ukrainian and we use this superpower to, to live in war, 
for 22 months and to believe that this war will end sooner or later and the end of this story will be our winner. Because we know it for sure that at the end of the story everything is always good. And if it is not good, this is not the end of the story. Okay. So we are ready. We are ready and we are strong enough to wait for the end of the story. Thank you very much for all of this, Natasha. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for inviting me. My guest was Natasha Forlova, a crisis psychologist and associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Social Work at Dnipro National University in Ukraine, who, as a Fulbright Scholar, is in residence at UC Irvine as she continues to build onto approaches toward addressing trauma on both the individual and the societal levels. Well, that is my wrap. Next week, we're going to have a huge City of Irvine update with Branda Lynn. She'll speak in her Irvine watchdog capacity. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>